Hi, this is Areej Noor, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Wrap, a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nations land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Mickey Kendall is the author of Hood Feminism, Notes from the Women, White Feminism Forgot. She'll be in conversation with Santilla Chingayape this Saturday, August 15th at midday as part of the Melbourne Writers Festival. And I am delighted to have her on the line this morning and I guess this evening for you, Mickey. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. We were just talking off air about time and what is time. And I guess for both of us, it's a construct that doesn't actually make sense. Time is actually a wild, twisty circle is my argument. And somewhere there's a physicist looking at the radio going, yes, exactly. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Hood feminism, I love it, I live it. What does hood feminism interrogate the mainstream feminism doesn't? It interrogates survival. It interrogates the work that women and communities that are marginalized are doing both for themselves and for their families and for the community as a whole to make it, even when poverty, violence, um, housing issues, all of these things that are obstacles communities that are marginalized face aren't being addressed. And the women in those communities have to create and practice their own feminism because mainstream feminism is largely talking about being a girl boss or being a CEO, about chasing power, but not about what that power can do or should do. Let's have a quick history lesson, Mickey. What are the roots of mainstream feminism in the US and, um, importantly, whose contribution has been erased? So... The odd thing about mainstream feminism is that here it started with the Haudenosaunee, which is an indigenous uh, nation here. Um, there's another term for them that the French use that I'm not going to use because it's a slur, but you can look it up. It's the second word of it is confederacy. Mm. The women in that community had rights. White feminists heard about their rights to vote and wanted, well, white suffragettes, really, they become feminists later, <laughs> wanted the same rights that they had, and they immediately started to argue that the value of white women having the vote was that it would trump the votes of black men who were the original, uh, the original group about to enter the franchise. Mm-hmm. And then as it went on, obviously other women of color, because black women had always worked, indigenous women had always worked, a lot of the concerns that they had about access to voting, about safety, those were sort of buried under this avalanche of white feminist voices saying that the work women of color had been doing wasn't feminist. It was race work. It was about class. It was literally, as far as they were concerned, not the same as feminism because it didn't impact white women. These weren't issues white women necessarily faced, at least not white women of of means. It's amazing that the right to vote for white women was marketed in some ways as a mechanism of upholding white supremacy, right? Like outvoting the black men. You want us. You want us. Well, and this was the thing. It was an explicitly stated by several big name mainstream feminists here. Rebecca Latimer Felton actually advocated for lynching. 
Susan B. Anthony and others would say outright that them having the franchise would protect white supremacy. <laughs> it's, it's incredible because it's also amazing how uh, mainstream feminism has been marketed around the world, right, and particularly um, from the United States. And the United States has this kind of big, broad imperial force. <laughs> In Australia, we look at the US and see the way that feminism has been marketed as this um, amazing liberal dream, whereas we come to a place like Australia and we have writers like Aileen Morton Robinson, who's this incredible um, Aboriginal feminist thinker who wrote this awesome book called Talking Up to the White Woman, Indigenous Women and Feminism, that is not being heard in a country like Australia 20 years on um, besides from a group of, you know, people who, you know, subscribe to what she, what she thinks. Why does the movement resist the concerns of black women and women of colour? Why are these concerns considered an inconvenience? Because many of the tenets of mainstream white feminism are about equality with white men, and white men having the power to oppress is something they are covertly and sometimes overtly chasing access to. They are not necessarily thinking well, this leaves these other women behind because their own unexamined biases mean that they think that other women who are not white, their concerns can come later. Their safety, their equality, their access to opportunity, those are for later. Let me get mine first, and then I'll think about granting it to you. I sometimes call that Miss Millie feminism, which is a reference to the color purple, because it is sort of the attitude of my needs are paramount and look how kind I am to even consider you as human. Hmm. You mentioned that hood feminism is survival. And so these needs of black women, women of colour, indigenous women, um, poor women are of survival. They're urgent needs. They're not the secondary the secondary need of being in a boardroom or whatever. You know, you, can, you can't survive um, to finally enter the boardroom if you don't have the means to live, right? Absolutely. If you're going hungry, if you're not housed, if you have no or limited access to education, then the opportunities that may come your way, which will be few and far between mm. already, you may not even be able to take advantage of them because you never had access to the basic tools that would get you ready for that. Mm. So I argue that we should be meeting everyone's needs before we worry about everyone's wants. I don't want anyone to go hungry, whether they are a poor white person or a poor black woman or a poor indigenous person. Mm. I don't want anyone to be unhoused, anyone to be struggling to access medical care, which is a big issue here in the U.S. I want everyone to have their basic human rights met. That doesn't mean you can't still pursue opportunity and access. I just think that if we're going to argue that the playing field is level, we should actually make it level. Mm. Is it possible to do it all at the same time? I think that there's a lot of conversation, at least in the last few years, about I can be outraged about X, Y, and Z and also experience X, Y, and Z. Is it possible to fight for, um, you know, equal representation in a board or whatever, as well as um, the rights of people who are unhoused, for instance? I, I would say that it is absolutely possible if 
You think of it this way. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do when you get on that board? What are you going to do if you become a CEO, if you become a mayor, a governor, whatever? Are you going to use that power to make it possible for other people to be housed, to be fed? Or are you going to get that power and then you seek more power? Mm. And never mind those people behind you. I think that when people say they can only do one thing, that's, I guess, logical. But people who have less than them are often doing multiple things and are expected to do multiple things. They're expected to fight racism, to fight sexism, to fight poverty, to fight other, you know, police brutality, all of these things at once. And also, while they're doing all of that, we then shame them for not being able to achieve more, right? We create situations where communities don't have any good choices, and then we say, why aren't you making better choices? You wrote this book before um, COVID-19, and this moment has really, you know, but there's been a lot of issues that have bubbled up to the surface as a result of COVID. We see in Australia, for instance, you know, who has the luxury to be 100% at home and survive that comfortably? You know, we have an increasingly casualised workforce who works in aged care. So at the moment in Australia, we have a huge crisis about um, COVID-19 entering the aged care system. Um, and often the people who work in aged care are, you know, often migrant women and, and it's a quite a casualised workforce who works within the security industry, who works in meatpacking, um, in supermarkets, who are essential workers, nurses and, and all of that. Do you think that... Um, these issues have kind of bubbled to the surface and do you, and how do you think um, mainstream feminism is kind of tackling this within the, the new context that we're in? Well, in the new context, mainstream feminism is sort of forced, being forced to confront the idea mm-hmm. that everyone from childcare workers to grocery store clerks have jobs that they need, even if you are the wealthiest person, right? You are a millionaire, billionaire, whatever. You still need someone to process the food that you purchase. You still need someone to work, like you said, in care facilities, to take care of roads, to to do all of these things that make it possible for you to stay home. So you can't say in one breath that these people are essential workers and they need to go to work every day, and then in the next breath say that they're unskilled labor and they don't deserve a living wage. They don't deserve access to healthcare, to education, to all of the things that prior to this, the argument was often that lower wage, as as you call them casual workers, we call them minimum wage workers, Mm. um, were not worth being paid more, were not worth more support. Now we see, oh no, we absolutely need these people. And I hope feminism comes away from this, thinking a lot about how much we need women who are caretakers and how much We need to support the people who take care of us and our elders and our children because those were women who were being left out of the conversation too often. But clearly, we need them to go to work. We need them to make it possible for us to go to work. Mm -hmm. I first learned about you when um, I saw the hashtag quite a few years ago now, Solidarity is for White Women. Um, and it really, it really went off. It came all the way to Australia and back around the mm-hmm. world and, and back to you. Um, what do you mean 
that solidarity is for white women and how do you think this conversation has changed in the last you know few years since the hashtag so when i when i did the hashtag it was a commentary on the idea that standing in solidarity with women of color was something white women didn't feel like they had to right mm-hmm. they were justifying in the conversation a white feminist here Jill Filipovic was justifying not doing anything about a known predator, uh, male, quote-unquote male feminist, by saying she had to stand in solidarity with her community. And her community of women was apparently white women, not the black women and brown women he had been targeting. And so in that conversation, when the part of why it trended, I think, is because then other people started to say they'd heard similar things, Right. Women of color were being expected to show up for feminism, but when we expected feminists to show up for us, they told us that these weren't their issues. And so in the years since, at the time, I was called divisive. It was, you know, a problem. I wasn't really standing with other women. How can you say these things? And now, especially in the U.S., after the 2016 election, Mm. the conversation has shifted. It's still shifting to the idea that perhaps expecting everyone to support in one direction isn't going to work out. Solidarity cannot be a one-way street. Absolutely. And I think, you know, at least in the last 18 months or something in Australia, there have been maybe some moves to changing conversations. I think we're still quite Mm -hmm. far behind, but there have been some moments of like light and some moments of conversations that were moving in the mainstream somewhat and bubbling up to the surface before then being squashed a little bit. But I think in some time we can develop those conversations and make them a little bit more sophisticated. Mm -hmm. One conversation that's been had in Australia is the one of being an ally. What does it mean to be an ally? Um, You ask about what it means to be an accomplice. Can you tell me what the difference between the the ally and the accomplice are? So an ally is often someone who says, I support you, and then they kind of stand back. They are basically cheerleaders for someone else's work in the struggle. They might show up to protest. Um, They will spread links on social media. They might donate some money, but basically they're not taking any risk. They're not taking any risks at work. They're not speaking up to their relatives. They are almost performing support. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say they don't genuinely want to do better, but there's a big difference between saying, yes, I see that fight and I hope you win it, and, oh, hold on, let me get in this fight with you. Mm -hmm. Let me fight back next to you. And my example I often use here, and when the protests first started again for Black Lives Matter, One of the protests, well, several of the protests, were young black people facing down with police. And what we started to see were young white women, sometimes young white men, getting between the line of officers and the young black people. And the reason to do that in a U.S. context, even though sometimes it doesn't work, is that police officers here are less likely to escalate to violence at a protest if the person in front of them is a white person they perceive as having status, right? Mm -hmm. Or, especially in the case of white women, if the presentation is such that they feel that they would be bullying, they would be, you know, cruel and all of these things because there's an attitude of protection extended to white women's bodies here sometimes. It's not unilateral, but sometimes. Mm 
And so the risk, though, obviously, is that you will catch the cop who doesn't think that way, and they start swinging a baton, or in the case of our officers, shooting, right? I know that that is a weird thing to say outside of the U.S., but you should understand that sometimes police officers here will shoot unarmed people because they could feel like they are threatened, Mm -hmm. and that is a justification that means they face no legal consequences. They don't lose their badge. They don't lose their job. They get to go on and do it again. So it's always riskier here if you are a person of color to do protesting, especially if you are a black man or woman, because officers may shoot you and then get away with your murder and go on to do it again. Yeah. In Australia, it's interesting because um, there are some circumstances where this happens, but a lot of the kind of violence that happens against um, First Nations people and and other um, black people in Australia is often in custody. Once you've already been locked up or once you're already in the police station, often people will die in, in, in custody, whether it be through negligence or whatever. And so the tactics are a little bit different, but the outcomes are, are quite similar across the world. It's amazing because... Um, you're absolutely right when it comes to what it means to be an accomplice and it's about taking that risk and not and and not always being it not always being on us to take the risk whether it be at work or whether it be um, in the streets or whether it be with regards to physical harm or whether it be with regards to your physical health or whatever it might be being part of a community who's willing to take um, a collective risk or take the risk together instead of it always being on our shoulders. Yeah, and that is actually the thing, I think, when I talk about allies, I know sometimes that can be a little difficult for people to hear because they want to be an ally. Mm. I'm not saying that being an ally is bad. I'm saying it's just the first step, Mm -hmm. that there's a progress to this, right? Just like you can become a better ally, you can become an accomplice. Mm -hmm. You can be the person that speaks up at work, for instance, when your boss is harassing someone or is being racist in meetings or, you know, take those kinds of risks, even if it's just to show up and back up the coworker who files the complaint. Mm -hmm. Mickey, Kendall, it's really sad to me that you're all the way in the US and I'm here, even though the Melbourne Writers Festival has already started. If this was normal times, we'd be doing this interview in person and we could actually meet. But it was it has been so great to chat with you over the phone. It has been great talking to you. I wish I could be there. I had planned. I was going to do a whole month in the South Pacific. So maybe maybe when the world reopens and, you know, if you let Americans in. You might not let us. We'll, <laughs> well, hopefully there'll be another book at another festival um, and you can come in and we can actually do this in person. That would be great. <laughs> I look forward to it. Thank you, Mickey. Thank you. Mickey Kendall is the author of Hood Feminism, Notes from the Women, White Feminism Forgot, a book I would suggest absolutely everyone reads, a series of essays. It is astute, it is sharp, it is thoughtful, it is powerful. Um, Mickey will be in conversation with Santilla Chingayape this Saturday, August 15th at midday as part of the Melbourne Writers Festival. You can jump on the website for more info and tickets. Shalini Kantea is the director of Coded Bias, a film about systemic and racial bias built into artificial intelligence and algorithmic software. Coded Bias is screening as part of the Melbourne International Film Festival this year. Uh, Shalini, it's so great to have you on the line all the way from Brooklyn. 
Thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm so happy to have such a warm response in Melbourne to Coded Bias. It's such an excellent film. I watched it the other night. It is thoughtful. It is powerful. But how much did you know about AI and algorithms and that kind of digital technologies world before working on this film? Uh, nothing, essentially. I, I, I mean, I'm a techie. I, I read Wired religiously. Um, and most of my films have to do with disruptive technologies and their impact on the marginalized. You know, do disruptive technologies make the world more fair or less fair? But I sort of stumbled upon the work of Joy Balamwini, the author of Weapons of Mass Destruction, uh, Kathy O'Neill, and sort of fell down the rabbit hole. And what I found most alarming was that algorithms that haven't been vetted for accuracy, haven't been vetted for racial bias and gender bias, are already being deployed at scale and making really important decisions, acting as these automated decision-making um, systems to decide who gets health care, who gets a job, who gets into college, um, how long a prison term someone may serve. And so um, I came to realize that we really need some protections in place from sort of invasive surveillance and, 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 and the sort of danger of what could be predatory technology. It's amazing because we often think the internet and also digital technologies and robots and algorithm are inherently neutral or inherently objective, Um, you know, because anyone can make an Instagram or Facebook or email or whatever. But it really comes with a lot of baggage, doesn't it? Absolutely. It's not neutral. And that's what I learned in the making of this film is that we sort of romanticize technology and we give them this sort of ultimate authority. I mean, if you or I said something and a computer says something, obviously we're wrong. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Kathy O'Neill really was the one who um, sort of said, we've got to challenge this blind faith we have in big data because uh, lo and behold, when you pull back the curtain, it's just people making this technology. And so the technology ha- has our own uh, biases, has the, the unconscious bias of the people who program it. And those people aren't just, you know, a nice cross-section of society. That Those people are those with power. Those people are white men, ultimately. Yes. I mean, it was never so dark than watching Joy trying to code in a white mask Mm -hmm. and realizing that systems that are in the U.S. already being used by law enforcement, uh, sold to the FBI, used by immigration officials, and yet it is so racially biased. And how could these large multinational corporate big technology companies miss this? And it is because of um, a lack of inclusion. Um, They have no one in the room um, to help them see into their blind spots, quite literally. Um, And so I think what I realized in the making of this film is that inclusion just isn't good for the pictures. It actually makes us more competitive and more innovative in the industries of the future, especially ones that are deployed all over the world. 
What would you say is like the central premise of coded bias? Because there's a lot of kind of points that are made. We engage with what these algorithms and artificial intelligence technologies mean for the justice system. We engage with what they mean for immigration. We engage, you know, with what they mean for surveillance and and all of that. But what is the kind of central core message or the core theme that comes out of this film or that you want to come out of this film? Well, I think that we have to to sort of begin to question this race towards efficiency Mm. and what part of our humanity we're sacrificing. Um, we're seeing a movement for equality and civil rights around the world, and um, we're all being asked to sort of um, lead from a more human place, a deeper place in our humanity. And I hope that that pervades technology too. And I think uh, one of the things that I learned, and and I hope ties the film together is that we can't trust this technology um, as sort of this white knight that's going to save us from ourselves, that this technology is uh, made by human beings and is flawed. And so what we actually need are laws to make sure that, um, you know, one of the things I realized is that AI dovetails with every civil right that we enjoy Mm. as citizens of a democracy. And um, so we need some laws in place to to make sure that we are not checking our civil rights away in the terms of conditions of these technologies that we can't opt out of Um, in the modern world. We have to participate. So we need them to... um, We need to demand our democratic values um, be encoded into the technologies of the future. Mm. You know, as the director of Coded Bias, you know, this concept isn't necessarily, um, you know, known across the world, across the US or even Australia that, you know, artificial intelligence algorithms are being used, have been used. There isn't... um, that much known within governments, maybe the people who are leading our countries don't have a sense of what is actually going on. You know, when when corporations and companies and people who work in them um, have more of a grasp on something, uh, they can absolutely manipulate it and use it in any which way that they want. How do you turn quite a complicated concept that actually a lot of people don't know much about into something that can be understood in like film form, how do you how do you break it down? <laughs> well, I couldn't go to parties for two years <laughs> because people would ask me what I'm making a film about, and I'd be like, um, I'm kind of making a film about racist robots <laughs> <laughs> and how machines like um, are racist, just like people, <laughs> and people's eyes would sort of glaze over. But I feel like um, because of the groundbreaking research of um, so many um, of the geniuses in my film, I think that's changing. And we're seeing now, like we did with climate change, like we did with COVID-19, that we have an urgent need to understand and to translate science. And the same is true with the technologies that impact us every day. And what I hope the film will do will sort of 
um, I know that the, the, the people in Coded Bias gave me an education. And I hope, in turn, I was able to share that with audiences that watch Coded Bias. Um, because I think that the first step in sort of taking action is actually getting educated. And we are... Um, with algorithmic justice where we were with climate change before an inconvenient truth. And I hope that Coded Bias will be that sort of landmark film to help raise awareness about this issue. There have already been a few uh, wins that have been achieved since you started making Coded Bias. What have they looked like? It's actually been really excited. We've seen a sea change that I never imagined when I started making this film, which is that, and this is uh, very much uh, has, is accredited also to um, uh, people in the streets who are demanding um, human rights and um, uh, standing up for the inherent value of all life and of black life. And um, I think because of that, um, uh, IBM said they were basically getting out of the facial recognition game. They would not research, deploy, or sell the technology. Microsoft said it would not sell facial recognition to police departments, and Amazon said it would take a one-year pause. And so, um, you know, it's kind of this incredible sea change, and at the same time, it's just a, also just a gesture because it shouldn't be up to the technology uh, companies whether they get to use this kind of invasive surveillance. Um, citizens should have some rights. And so um, what I feel, um, and, I, and I think we owe a debt of gratitude to some of the groundbreaking research of Joy Bulamini and Timnit Gebru and... Deborah Raji um, for proving this technology has racial bias because I feel like now we have uh, a moonshot moment where um, these technologies are finally um, being scrutinized because we rely on them even more in the in the context of this pandemic and citizens are wanting some balance to the oversized power of big tech. Mm. Um, people are realizing that it's not healthy for democracy and we need to hold them accountable and regulate uh, these industries like we regulate every other industry. So I'm really hopeful at this moment. And um, if you are a citizen of a democracy right now, it is not the time to be asleep at the wheel. It is time for all of us to be engaged citizens and um um, participate in our in our uh, in the process. What do you think we can do as individuals, though, when it comes to all of this stuff? You know, a lot of it isn't in our hands. But what do you think is the best way to make a fuss? Well, I actually wouldn't underestimate the power of education. So, of course, I'm going to recommend that you share coded bias and talk about it at dinner. <laughs> and um, sort of raise important questions and have these conversations with, with your friends and neighbors and people you love. Um, I think that's one part of it. And then there's a number of things that you can do on the Coded Bias website. You can go to Take Action at CodedBias.com 
and we have a number of, of ways that people can uh, get educated, continue the reading list, and actually um, take action against facial recognition. And how has the film been received? What does it mean for you to have it screen all the way in Melbourne um, at the Melbourne International Film Festival? Um, well, I love the Aussies, and I love Melbourne. I've had the good fortune of being there for another film festival. So I love the spirit of Melbourne. I'm really sorry that we can't be together. It means so much to me that, that, that we sold out one screening and we just added another screening. And what I hope is that we start a global dialogue. Um, this just isn't about the U.S. I mean, US, the U.S. is at the center of, our, our, of this discussion because the technology companies, many of them are based here, and it's like a wild, wild west. But data rights as human rights um, should be a topic of conversation all over the world, and we should all be thinking um, into the future about what they need for um, all of the different uh, power that we're giving them in our society across sectors. Shalini, thank you so much for joining me, and thank you for making this film. Thanks so much for having me, and um, and I'm excited to have Coded Bias and to share it in Melbourne. Thank you. Shalini Kantai is the director of Coded Bias, a film about systemic and racial bias built into artificial intelligence and algorithmic software. I know it sounds like a lot, and I know that we're all going through a lot at the moment, but it is... Um, an incredibly enlightening, in many ways empowering film because there are moments in there where there are some wins. Um, I think it is one that is incredibly important and I recognise that, you know, like I said, there's a lot happening at the moment. But, you know, spending an hour and a half watching something like this would be very beneficial to all of us because I think something that we lack in Australia and, you know, around the world is an understanding and a little bit of power and education and control over our use of digital technologies. It's screening as part of the Melbourne International Film Festival this year. You can jump on the MIF website for a streaming link. Our Art is Our Lifeline is a national campaign launched by Indigenous Art Code to encourage the purchase of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander art. I have Stephanie Parkin, a proud Kwandamuka woman, lawyer and the chair of Indigenous Art Code on the line to tell me all about it. Stephanie, thanks for joining me. Oh, good morning. Thanks for having me on. So tell me, what is the Indigenous Art Code? Why was it started and what kind of work do you do? Okay, so um, uh, the Indigenous Art Code, it's a voluntary uh, code of conduct. So um, it was established uh, and started operating uh, back in 2010. Um, so it's been around for quite a few years now. And um, one of the ways in which it came about was through an inquiry um, that occurred back in 2017. Um, and that inquiry looked at a range of things um, in relation to the Indigenous uh, visual arts market. Um, and one of the recommendations out of that uh, inquiry was to um, set up or establish the Indigenous Art Code uh, with the purpose of trying to establish um, ethical and transparent standards between art dealers and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists. Um, and so um, the code um, is directed by Board of Directors. Um, and we do a range of um, programs and assistance to provide Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists in their arrangements, so um, helping them to access um, information um, around their arrangements, 
um, assisting them to get um, support from other service providers. Um, we also do work around sort of consumer education as well, so providing materials um, to consumers um, to support um, any questions or sort of education materials that they can ask when they are thinking about purchasing Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander art or licensed products. Um, and then we also work with dealers as well um, to ensure that um, those who are looking to sign up as signatories of the Indigenous Art Code um, are upholding um, those standards of the code. And really what the code is established for is to ensure that there's ethical and transparent dealings, as I said, um, between dealers and artists and things, practically the things that that might um, entail include, um, you know, making sure artists understand um, the terms of any agreement, uh, acting in good faith and ensuring that there's recognition and respect for an artist's um, cultural and intellectual property rights that might be associated with a piece of work. There's been... So there's... Yeah, sorry, go yeah. on. So there's a range of things that we do. Um, so in that advocacy space um, and also... Um, We've been involved in running different campaigns. We've got a new campaign at the moment, which we'll speak about as well, Our Art is Our Lifeline. Um, and we've also been involved in a previous campaign um, that the listeners might know of, and that was called the Fake Art Hums Culture mm -hmm. Campaign. And that was run um, with the Copyright Agency and Arts Law Centre of Australia. Um, and really what that was about was in response to artists um, coming to us, identifying issues around fake art, um, and then that was a campaign launched around that um, and also, uh, you know, lobbying for policy and law changes ar around those issues as well. So there's a whole range of different um, things that we do um, at the Indigenous Art Code. Like you mentioned, there's been, you know, lots of discussion over the last few years about, you know, fake Indigenous art um, and intellectual property rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists. What are the like fundamental problems, legal or otherwise, that are at play when it comes to Indigenous art being exploited? Yeah, so I think probably one of the starting points is to recognise that this issue has been around for a very long time mm. um, uh, and there's been um, a lot of um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists who've been involved um, in trying to um, push for change and reform and recognition and a lot of people in the industry. So we're talking decades in terms of trying to get um, proper legal protections and recognitions in place. Um, and so what that really means is that at the moment there's no sort of, from a legal perspective, there's no real comprehensive legislation in place in Australia that uh, recognises the unique rights that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have in relation to their cultural expressions and traditions. Um, and in that case, um, w without that sort of comprehensive legislation, um, if there are infringements of rights, either copyright or otherwise, um, artists um, are then, you know, required to look at other pieces of legislation um, that currently exist. So there might be things like the Copyright Act or the Trademarks Act, uh, where artists, you know, have to try and find some type of legal recourse. Um, and that can be done at times, but really the problematic thing with that is those pieces of legislation really weren't um, formulated or designed uh, with the intent of protecting those unique rights um, that Indigenous people have um, over their, their cultural works. Um, so there are some sort of holes and limitations in existing laws that sometimes make it difficult um, for 
uh, Indigenous artists to exercise their legal rights over their work. Um, and one of the grey areas that we've seen out of, um, you know, the fake art harms culture campaign and the way that those products are allowed to exist um, is that because of those uh, limitations in law, there's a grey space that such products are allowed to exist in. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, the Indigenous Art Code, along with Copyright Agency and Arts Law Centre of Australia, have been, you know, quite vocal uh, with the support of um, artists and those in the industry to to really push for policy um, and legal reform uh, in this area. Mm. So it's not illegal to sell fake Indigenous art. People can do that technically in Australia. Yeah, well, so a lot of the campaign um, and work that was done around that space was a lot of the souvenir products that mm. people might see. So a lot of the souvenir and touristy type products um, that would ordinarily be found and sort of marketed to um, the tourists. So there are some laws in place around misleading and deceptive conduct. So it's a consumer law type of focus. Um, and what that means is that if someone's been um, misleading or deceptive about it, so if they say that it's made by an Aboriginal person but it's not, you can get in trouble for that. Mm. So it's going to breach um, the current laws that we have in place. But if something is made by a non-Indigenous person and they don't actually say who made it or they don't say it's made by a... They don't represent that it's made by an Aboriginal person, um, there's really nothing wrong with that. Mm. So, for example, if something was made... Um, just say like a bamboo um, boomerang or didgeridoo made overseas um, and just say, for example, if it was imported into Australia, um, what if, if the labelling around that said made in China or elsewhere, um, mm. that would allow that would allow to be that would um, allow to, to exist uh, in the market because there's no misleading and deceptive conduct, mm. i.e. the consumer knows where it was made and it's not made here in Australia. So... Um, yeah, so if someone's being misleading or deceptive, there are problems under the law. Um, but if there's sort of a vagueness or if they're very clear about where it was made, e.g. China, um, it means that that type of product is allowed to exist. Yeah. So that's a gap. Um, and a lot of the submissions um, that were made um, to the inquiry around that issue also uh, proposed some legal reforms around that to try and close that gap mm. as well. Is it also a more fundamental question about, you know, who owns culture, who can profit from culture? Like myself, I'm African. I've seen people who have no connection to my culture profit from our designs and clothes and, like, even language in some contexts. How do we, like, legislate something like this as it relates to First Nations people? Or is it also about education and other approaches of, you know, this isn't the right thing to do. You can't take people's culture and market it and capitalise of it. It doesn't belong to you. You know, it is more important than just a T-shirt or, you know, is it about education as well as legislation or, like, how do we approach it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's probably a whole range of things that need to be happening all at the same time to have a really, you know, good impact and strong effect on this type of conduct. So you're right. I mean, changes to legislation will only go so far. I mean, it's a good step. Um, you know, it means that, you know, we're serious about it and that we won't, you know, sort of tolerate that type of behaviour if there's penalties and things attached to it. But, yeah, uh, uh, reforms to law will only go so far. And you're right, education is a very key um, thing in this space, and that's education um, of artists, you know, to continue to understand what their rights are under the law, how they can protect their works, what type of agreements need to be entered into, 
Um, and also education for consumers. Consumers really have a lot of power in this space as well um, to, you know, do research, um, to ask questions about where things are from. Um, and so really it is, a, it is an education piece and also the legal piece, I think, as well, you know, working together. And also fundamentally understanding the importance of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander yeah. art, why it exists. And, you know, it, it's important to artists as well, but uh, in my view, it's important to all of us who are living here um, in this country because it is really the, the initial foundation of this country's identity. And so, you know, that is something that um, can be engaged with and learned from. And really, I think from this new campaign that we're talking about, Our Art is Our Lifeline, really is that invitation to engage with Indigenous artists, Indigenous culture. How can people make sure they're supporting Indigenous artists and not, you know, fakes? What kind of assurances can they have if people intend to buy Indigenous art and they want to buy it, art that's made by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, how can they be sure, you know, depending on where they get it from, that, it, you know, the money is going back to those individuals or the art was made by them? Yeah, sure. So I think um, one of the things about uh, the Indigenous Art Code and, uh, you know, the signatories that sign up to the code, so our members, um, part of that process is that they've demonstrated a commitment um, to ensuring that, um, you know, there's there's clear understanding of what that transaction is between um, a dealer member and an artist, so understanding how those pieces have gotten to where they are. Um, and also understanding that there's been some, you know, questions asked along the way um, and ensuring that there's, you know, discussions around payment and any royalties that would flow back to the artist. So um, for those who are wanting to purchase, um, you know, authentic um, and ethically, um, ethical, um, you know, channels, uh, we do encourage people to go to our website, indigenousartcode.org, um, and you can look for members of the Indigenous Art Code. So these are Indigenous artist members, Indigenous-owned businesses, and also broader dealer members who operate in the space as well, who work with um, Indigenous artists. And really, um, those members who are on our website, they really demonstrated that commitment to ensuring that there's been that transparent and ethical transaction um, between the dealer and the artist. So that's one way um, that uh, we would be encouraging people to ensure that they're purchasing ethically through those type of sources, uh, to look for... Um, members of the Indigenous Art Code. As I said, you can find them on our website, indigenousartcode.org. But also, if you are um, going to shops, I'm not sure how many people are at the <laughs> moment, but a lot of the dealer members as well uh, display our Indigenous Art Code website mm-hmm. on their shop fronts. Uh, sorry, the logo on shop fronts mm-hmm. um, and also in their retail spaces. So that's one, uh, one avenue in which um, those... Uh, pieces can be purchased through Um, and otherwise you know consumers being um, you know not afraid to ask the questions um, ask questions about the artist and about the piece of work um, how long um, has the you know deal been working with the artist you know what where's the artist from who is the artist you know what are the arrangements between um, the artist and if there are any uh, royalties flowing back to the artist so these are questions that can certainly be asked Uh, by consumers. Yeah. So tell me about Our Art Is Our Lifeline. Why did you launch this campaign and, you know, how can people support? Sure. So um, Our Art Art Is Our Lifeline campaign 
was launched quite recently. So it's a national campaign um, that we've launched um, with the assistance of Macquarie Group as one of our major supporters. Um, and really, this campaign, it, it, it's really trying to highlight um, and support the Indigenous art industry through this really uncertain time of COVID. Um, it, it is important always to support it, but with a lot of uh, cancellations and shutdowns of major events that a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists relied upon uh, for their incomes during this time. Those have even been either been you know closed down completely. So a lot of the face-to-face interactions where artists would have had opportunities to sell their work. So they've either been closed down um, or moving into online spaces. So we've seen things recently like the Darwin Aboriginal Art Fair has moved on to an online space mm-hmm. and the Cairns Indigenous Art Fair, uh, which is coming up, is also doing that. So, um, And also the foot traffic, I think a lot of um, artists have missed out on. So a lot of the tourists who would ordinarily visit mm-hmm. uh, these places, meet artists, engage with works and exhibitions and galleries, have really been impacted during this time. And so the purpose of the uh, Our Art is Our Lifeline campaign um, is to continue to support the industry during this time, particularly Indigenous artists, um, and also to ensure that the way in which these works are sold um, and purchased through are through ethical and transparent channels. Um, and so, as I said, it's a national campaign. As part of the campaign, uh, we will be we're showcasing nine different artists from across the country. So members of the public will really get to see the breadth and diversity um, of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander art in this country um, and also the breadth and diversity of the actual artists. Um, so we've had a few artists um, that have been um, profiled on our social medias, so Indigenous Art Code Facebook and Indigenous Art Code Instagram. We've had a couple of artists um, already. So um, actually one of them is Mick Harding, who's an artist from down there in Victoria mm-hmm. as well. Um, so he's been profiled. He uh, works with a lot of wood and printmaking um, and giftware. Um, so that's a good, you know, local artist to support. We've also seen um, some profiles from an artist, um, Naomi, Naomi Hobson, um, from the Cape York Peninsula. And really, the purpose around profiling uh, these nine artists, uh, members of the public will get to meet them through our social media, through outdoor advertising, and also in print media. Get to meet the artists, get to understand their works and what informs their works, their cultural practices that informs their works. And members of the public will also get a sense of how these artists have adapted uh, during this time of COVID and really sharing their story about that. Mm. Um, And so while we're profiling nine different artists, again, we are um, encouraging, uh, you know, the public to engage more broadly with our Indigenous Art Code members um, through our website um, as well. Stephanie, thank you so much for doing this work and thank you so much for this amazing campaign and for taking the time to chat with me this morning. Thank you thank you very much. Thank you. Stephanie Parkin is a proud Kwandamooka woman, lawyer and the chair of Indigenous Art Code, an organisation that has launched a national campaign to encourage the purchase of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander art called Our Art is Our Lifeline. For more information, jump on indigenousartcode.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Wrap, 
a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nations land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and if you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.